Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Tonight, we're going to talk about the new heaven and the new earth. I don't know about you, I'm really, I'm really um, interested in this teaching about the new heaven and the new earth because you don't really hear a lot about it. And because of the culture because of things that we've seen for years culturally, uh, I think most people's first automatic thought of what heaven's going to be like, they're going to be, you know, in the clouds, in the sky with God, maybe some angels, maybe a harp, and that's all because of the cultural portrayal of it. Uh, but when you read Revelation, particularly the end of the book, it's a whole lot more than that. And uh, we're going to look at that uh, tonight. Um, to kind of frame this, we are now at the bookends of the Bible. Now, what do I mean by that? If you read nothing in the Bible except the first three chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation, just five chapters, you would have read what I call the bookends of the Bible. And they really complement one another. Let me, let me illustrate for just a moment. In Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, then you go through the, the days of creation. And we, we realize that during that process of six days, he established the day and the night. Uh, he created the sea. Uh, he created the sun, as well as a bunch of other things. But just I'm just mentioning those particularly. And then you get to the fall in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve sinned against God. They did the one thing he told them not to do. And as a result, God pronounced a curse upon Adam. Work by the sweat of your brow, right? Uh, Eve will have pain in childbirthing. And then creation, creation as a whole is under a curse, and we see that. And as a result, now that sin has been committed, the wages of sin is death. And now death enters the human race and our personal experience. And there's sorrow and pain to go with it. And then ultimately, they are removed from the garden. You remember that? The tree of life is there. And there's a, there's a cherubim. A cherubim an angel, that's a hard word to say, right? An angel, though, is guarding with a flaming sword the, the path to the tree of life. And God says we can't let man, you know, partake of the tree of life. Now, the big question would be why? Because if man is in a sinful, fallen state, separated from God, and then they live forever like that, that's hell on earth, okay? It, it really is. And um, it would be the definition of, not just death, but eternal death. And so God knew what he was doing. He banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and a lot of people call that paradise lost. That's the first three chapters of the Bible. Uh, starts out promising, and it goes downhill fast, doesn't it? And then you read the rest of the Bible, and you kind of hit a wall. Hey, same old thing. You know, here we are, another generation, same problem, sin. Same result, death. When's it ever going to change? And then it comes Jesus, of course. And because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, now we get to the end of the Bible, the last two chapters. And now, listen to this. This is what's so cool. In Revelation 21, 
1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So already you've got a new heaven and a new earth. You, you don't have any more sea. And if you keep reading, you will find that there's no more curse. There's no more death. There's no night there. There's no need of the sun. And then uh, there's no more tears or pain. And ultimately, paradise is restored. Awesome. What, what a great ending, right? Well, that's how we're going to end the book of Revelation. And I just wanted to put that in, in context, if you will. Now, here's a quote that I want to start with that will kind of tie what we're about to look at tonight to what we looked at last time we were here in Revelation. Uh, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, was the great white throne judgment. Well, let me, let me build on that thought very quickly by kind of linking this all together, okay? So, Vern Poitry says this. He says, the final judgment of God has two sides. The negative side, which is the judgment of the wicked, which is described in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And there's a positive side, the reward for the righteous. And that's described in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Within the negative message of Revelation 20, 11 through 15, one finds a positive message in the mention of the book of life at the end. For instance, look there in Revelation 20, verse 15. Uh, after, you know, judgment, 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 it says in verse 15, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, in other words, those whose names are written in the book of life aren't thrown into the lake of fire. So there's, you know, there's a, uh, there's a, a glimmer of hope there, you know. Uh, but then, and what we're going to look at tonight, within the positive message of Revelation 21, 1 through 8, you find a negative mention uh, of a fiery lake again at the end in verse 8. Look at Revelation 21, 8. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, uh, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you kind of see how these passages complement one another. The end of 20 and the first of 21. They kind of complement one another in their structure. And so they symmetrically depict the negative and positive sides of God's judgment. And we see this passage, Revelation 21, 1 through 8, as a bridge uh, between the judgment of the wicked at the end of chapter 20 and an extended description coming up of the New Jerusalem in the rest of chapter 21, which we'll look at next week. So that'll be fun. So let's look at this. John sees something. He sees two things. And the first thing he sees is the new heaven and the new earth. Let's uh, go ahead and read that. Revelation 21.1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I like uh, what this commentator says. He says, God creates a new heaven and a new earth, which implies comprehensive renovation. Now, some have thought that the new universe will be an entirely new one, having no connection with the old. But Isaiah 65 and Romans 8 indicate that a transfiguration of the old world is in view. 
uh, and he says it's kind of like the way our new bodies will be transformations of our old bodies. Everything is new, but the result is the redemption of the old, not its evolution. And I would agree with that. There's two. There, there's a fork in the road when it comes to the new heaven and the new earth. Some people believe that when he destroys the old, he literally destroys it as in throwing it in the trash can. It's irredeemable. It's unusable. It's done. It's gone. And then presto, he creates a new one. But, but there's enough stuff in Scripture that I really don't believe that, and it's not consistent with everything else God does in salvation. Okay, In salvation, we are now born again. Uh, he allows His Holy Spirit to inhabit this old body that's still kind of corrupted by sin and is going to die someday. And yet this old body of mine that one day is going to be buried in the ground, when Christ comes back, it's going to be raised in glory. Okay? And so let me, let me point you to what I'm trying to say. So let's look for a moment in Isaiah 65, and then we'll look at Romans 8. And I want to illustrate that. In Isaiah 65, going to the Old Testament, uh, here's what the prophet writes. He says, For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a, light, a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. Uh, and, it, and it just keeps on going. So it's, it's interesting, he mentions a new heaven and a new earth, and then in the next verse, he starts talking about Jerusalem. And uh, we'll get more into it uh, next week. It, you'll see it here tonight. Uh, he mentions new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21, verse 1. And the very next verse, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. They, they go together, okay? So you're going you're gonna to find that. And then uh, jump to Romans 8. This, to me, is the clearest passage written by the pen of Paul that, to me, swings me toward God is going to redeem this earth, okay? Uh, look at what it says in Romans 8. He says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Now, what is he saying here? He's, Paul is pointing out that when Adam and Eve sinned and death entered the world, um, it wasn't just them that was affected, okay? It wasn't just them. All of creation was affected. Remember, God cursed him, her, and the earth. Cursed is the ground, he told Adam, for thy sake. And so all of creation, according to Romans 8.20, is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in the hope that what? That creation itself will one day be set free from the bondage to, of decay. Okay, And then it goes on to say in Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So that's pretty awesome. 
it's kind of like the, the stage drop or the backstage drop of what's going on in God's salvation agenda in the world. Yes, the focus is on the cross, and the result is you and I can be saved through the blood and the resurrection of Jesus. But the backdrop is, remember that curse of sin that affected you and me and all of creation? Well, one of these days when Christ comes back and the sons of God, the children of God are revealed, then we're going to see the rest of it. We're going to see how creation is redeemed. Creation is groaning. We are groaning. And one day, we won't have to groan anymore. And that's what's pretty awesome when you think about it. Let me give you another verse that I think points to the idea that God's going to uh, reverse the curse and restore this, this you know, current earth and current heaven to you know, better-than-ever status, you might say. In, in uh, Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 3, um, I think Peter and John went to the temple and they healed a, a, a beggar that couldn't walk. And then a crowd gathered and he began to preach. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, here's a statement that Peter makes. Okay, I've already read what Paul said in Romans 8. Now what about Peter? Peter in, Peter in Acts 3, 21 says, Heaven must receive him, referring to Christ, Heaven must receive Jesus Christ until the time of the restoration of all things. Did you see that? Which God spoke about through His holy prophets from the beginning. Wow, now that goes all the way back to the beginning, doesn't it? And so it seems to me, particularly the New Testament perspective, between Paul and between Peter, that when Christ comes back, He's going to restore all things. If he can take this body that dies because of sin and goes into the grave and decays and decomposes, and one day when he comes back, he can raise that body up. Same body, but a new body, okay? Uh, he can do the same thing to creation. And so, um, anyway, I, I think that is good. Uh, another, another thing, I don't have time to go there, but if you study this, you'll find there's two kinds of words for new and if I remember right, the word for new when they talk about this is quality, not kind. Not a new kind of earth like another one that he makes, but quality, new. Just like a neighbor of mine years ago, you've heard me talk about, had a 65 Ford Mustang, candy apple red. Well, when he bought it, it had been sitting in somebody's yard for 15 years, and it was ugly, and it was just, it was awful. I mean, I was like, he said, come here, Corey, and we walked around it. And then we walked around it again, and he's just smiling like this, and I'm not. You know why? Because I couldn't see what he saw. Now, within a year later, he had it fully rebuilt, and then I saw what he originally saw. You know, like he had the vision for it. He knew exactly how he was going to fix it. He knew exactly what it would look like what he was, when it was done. All I saw was this old, decayed uh, car that looked like it missed the junkyard and should go there now, you know? And by the time he got done with it, I mean, everything was new and shiny, and he cranked it up. You know, it was awesome. Well, I believe that God is going to restore uh, the universe. Now, let me put it this way. I, I love doing this, and I want to I give you food for thought, something to think about. Uh, I said this, I think, a couple, three weeks ago, and I want to say it again, again and kind of give you some links here to Scripture so you can kind of put some pieces of a puzzle together. 
But consider the hope of the Hebrews, okay? Uh, Hebrews is another uh, way of saying the Jews. So consider the hope of the Hebrews. You know, Peter was a Jew, Paul was a Jew, and uh, we have a book in the New Testament outside of Revelation. I think it's the hardest book in the New Testament to understand, and that is the book of Hebrews. Uh, why do I think it's hard to understand? Because if you don't have uh, if you don't have a familiarity with the Old Testament, you're going to read stuff and it's going to go right over your head because you're going to read uh, you're going to read references and, uh, and and terms and allusions that that link to a bunch of Old Testament images and instruction. And if you're not familiar with that stuff, you won't even know you passed it. It'll just go right over your head. And so I want to go to Hebrews for a minute, and I want to say. Consider the hope of the Hebrews. What, what did the Hebrew people, what did the Jewish people, what is their highest aim, their greatest hope when it comes to their future in God? What do you think it is? Well, I'm, I'm going to kind of show you what I think it is. Um, first of all, look in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. It says, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways, and in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. Now, I emphasize that last statement, okay? God has appointed Christ heir of all things. That covers everything, don't it? And made the universe through Him. Not just, you know, this planet, but the whole thing. And so... God made the universe. That opens our minds. That broadens our perspective tremendously. And then, still in Hebrews 1, scroll down to verse 10, and here's what we read. Now, at this point, he's saying God has spoke, you know, to, the, uh, to, the, to our patriarchs by the prophets different times, different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his Son, and then in the next few verses, he establishes why Jesus, the Son of God, is superior to other forms of messengers like the angels and stuff like that. And then he says, he quotes an Old Testament verse there in Hebrews 1.10, In the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing, and you will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing, but you are the same, and your years will never end. Interesting. You come in, uh, you come in at the end of the day, you've been working, and you change your clothes. You put on something, you know, clean and fresh. And he's saying the old... It's going to be discarded like clothes. They're going to be rolled up like a cloak. And, uh, and you know, the earth and the heavens will perish, but you will remain. So that's, that's interesting. Then go to Hebrews chapter 12. We've done a big leap now. Uh, that's the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Now let's jump to the end of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, look, if you will, in verse 25. Hebrews 12, 25. And I haven't forgot about Revelation, y'all. We're going back. I just want to give you some pieces to put together. In Hebrews 12, 25, it says, See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. 
for if they, referring to the Israelites in Moses' day, for if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so I think that's interesting. Uh, once more, God will shake the heavens and the earth, and only what is unshakable will remain, which is the kingdom of God. We're receiving and inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Well, I'll let you stew on that for a little bit. We'll, we'll build some more on that in a minute. So let's go back to Revelation 21. John saw two things. The first thing he saw was a new heaven and a new earth. He saw it. He had a vision. He saw it. Okay? And then the second thing he saw was New Jerusalem. And they go together. Okay? They go together. Uh, there in Revelation 21 verse 2, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And it's interesting because... Uh, the New Jerusalem is mentioned earlier in the book of Revelation. And uh, I've got to turn there real quick to, to find that. I know it's in there. Um, yeah, look, look very quickly at uh, Revelation 3, verse 12. This is the first time the New Jerusalem is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And I just want to point out something significant. Okay, so in Revelation 3, verse 12, this is the letter to the church at Philadelphia, and he makes a promise to all of the churches, and the promise he makes to the church in Philadelphia in uh, Revelation 3.12, listen closely, I'll emphasize it. He says, The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Here it is. <clears throat> The new Jerusalem, and then look what it says about it, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Okay? And so we're told from get-go that this new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. And then you get to Revelation 21, and what does it say? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I think it's significant that every time in Revelation it mentions it, it emphasizes that it's coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, You'll see it again later on in this same, same chapter, uh, 21, or it could be 22. So, that's interesting. Uh, Kendall easily says this. He says, John conveys that the final home of the redeemed is earth itself for eternity. In other words, God created humanity to dwell on the earth and his plan is for a new earth to be their place forever. In fact, one striking note about this vision of New Jerusalem is the reappearance of the tree of life, which was one of the items in the garden, remember, that we were banished from 
Uh, look, if you will, I know I'm jumping ahead, but just wanted to point out to you, in Revelation 22, look in verse 2. In the very next chapter, Revelation 22, uh, verse 2, he's, ta- he's still describing the city, the New Jerusalem, and he says, down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. Okay? And so, still talking about the city, going down Main Street, and there is the tree of life. And so, it's pretty awesome when you think about it. Um, Again, let's go back to what is the hope of the Hebrews? Well, when we went back to the book of Hebrews a while ago, uh, it appears to me that the New Testament understanding of of Hebraic thought is that God is going to do something with this earth and this heaven, and we're going to get a new one. And everything's going to be shaken, but we're going to get a kingdom that is unshakable. Uh, Well, remember I said that the new heaven, the new earth, and new Jerusalem go together? Well, you're going to see it in the book of Hebrews too. Uh, Look, if you will, in Hebrews 11. You know that chapter. That is the faith chapter where it tells us what faith is, and it kind of does a kind of quick overview, roll call of history, how this one and that one and this person and that person, they all live by faith and they please God. Well, when it gets to Abraham's name, when it calls him out, listen to what it says about Abraham. Now, remember, Abraham is the father of all the faithful, right? Uh, Because we have the same faith he did. So look in Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. Remember, God told him, go to a land that I'll show you, right? He went out, and even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob. That's three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three generations, they lived in tents. They were co-heirs of the same promise. And then look at verse 10. For he, referring to Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now that might kind of rub against everything you always thought you knew from Sunday school. Because from Sunday school we'll always say, well, you know, God told Abraham, you know, to leave your father, mother, and everything behind and go to a land that I will show you. And he, he got up and he went. And he went to, you know, he, he, he went to the promised land. God showed him. Uh, he didn't know where he was going, but God guided his steps. And when he got there, there he was. And, you know, he lived by faith. And you might say, well, what was he looking forward to? Well, according to Hebrews 11, he was really looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, I suspect that that city is the New Jerusalem. But I don't want to be presumptuous, so let's hold that at bay for just a minute and say what the Scripture says, that it's going to be a city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All right, then let's go down just a few more verses because it talks about Sarah, and then it comes back around in verse 13, Hebrews 11, verse 13. After mentioning a few few people at this point, it says, These all died in faith, whether it was Abraham, Sarah, and all those before them. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance. They greeted them, and they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. 
Now watch this. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So now we have a heavenly city that is built by God. And then let's jump to the next chapter, Hebrews 12, and look, if you will, in verse 22. Hebrews 12, verse 22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And I submit to you that the heavenly Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem of Revelation are the same thing, okay? To myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. And boy, I could preach right now on that. The, the, the blood, the, what is it it says? It says... Uh, to the, the covenant, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, which says things better than the blood of Abel. You remember the story about Cain and Abel, and Cain killed his brother Abel, and God came to Cain and said, God came to Cain and he says, I hear your brother's cries. You know? The blood of Abel was crying up from the from the earth because his blood had been spilled on the ground, and it was crying for justice. And Jesus' blood has a better word than the blood of Abel. He says, I died and I paid it all. Man, that is awesome when you think about it. Now, so, so here's the thing. When you put all this together, I've got one more verse. Hebrews 13, the very last chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, look if you will in verse 14. And this theme about a city is still going strong. In Hebrews 13, look in verse 14, toward the very end of the letter. He says, for we do not have an enduring city here, Instead, we seek the one to come. So there's a city built by God, okay? And uh, this city is a heavenly city, and it's an enduring city, and it's supposed to come. Sounds like the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem to me. That is the hope of the Hebrew people. And when you get to the New Testament and you look at the hope that the Hebrew people have... I believe it's rooted in a, a better understanding of the new heaven and the new earth, okay? The new heaven and the new earth, and throw in the new Jerusalem because they're mentioned uh, together. They go together. All right, now let's go back to Revelation 21. So just food for thought there, food for thought. So John saw two things. He saw a new heaven and a new earth, and he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then he heard four statements, and we're going to look at each one. The first statement he heard was God's dwelling is with humanity. Look, if you will, in verse 3 and 4. We're back in Revelation now. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4. Here's what he says. John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, so we presume that this is God speaking. He says, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and He will live with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. 
Now, again, let me, I'm going to throw a little pushback here, okay? I think we all need this. Again, culturally speaking, okay, when we think about just the first things that come to mind when we think about heaven and, you know, being with God in glory someday, the afterlife, again, most people tend to think clouds and angels and harps and all that, and they get to thinking, we're going to be with God, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's biblical to say we're going to be with God. We're going to be with Jesus. But can I submit to you that that's just one side of a two-sided coin? The other side of it is He's going to be with us. Now, look at it again because I think we need to see this. See, the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God to earth. Uh, Here's what I want you to see. Right now, heaven and earth are like worlds apart. But when Christ comes back and restores the cosmos, if you will, heaven and earth are going to be aligned, if you will. Okay, Heaven and earth are going to be aligned, and the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is going to come down from heaven to earth, and God's dwelling, as it says right here in verse 3, God's dwelling is with humanity, and He will live with them. And we've, we've so emphasized that we're going to be with Him and live with Him where He is that it's hard for us to accept this truth that's plainly stated in black and white English here in Revelation 21 verse 3 that He's coming down to live with us. Uh, I, the only way you can make sense of that is heaven and earth now instead of being worlds apart because of sin, the restoration of all things, God who made the universe is now making all things new and heaven and earth are aligned, okay? You'll see why in a minute, because he's going to paint such a beautiful picture, because sin is no longer the issue. Sin is not the thing that divides anymore. Now, I like what uh, Warren Wiersbe says. This is a long quote. Uh, Bear with me, but it's worth saying. Here's what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, The most important thing about this city is that God dwells there with his people. Okay, don't miss that. I know that's obvious, but don't miss it. The most important thing about this city, the New Jerusalem, the holy city, is that God dwells there with His people. The Bible gives us an interesting record of the dwelling places of God. Think about this. First, God walked with man in the garden. You know this. And then, and then He dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle and later the temple. Now, the tabernacle and temple were basically the same thing. The difference was the tabernacle was portable. It was a tent. The temple was a building, kind of like this one. You can't move it around, okay? Uh, then, when Israel sinned, God had to depart from those dwellings. Then later, Jesus comes, and in John 14, uh, it says that Christ came to earth and He dwelt among us, that same word, tabernacled, Okay? The tabernacle from heaven came to us. His name is Jesus. And now today, God does not live in man-made temples, but in the bodies of His people, His saints, His children, and the church. And so in both the tabernacle and the temple, the veil stood between men and God. The veil was torn in two when Christ died on the cross. And Hebrews 10 says there's a new and living way for God's people. And even though God dwells in believers today through His Spirit, He says, we still have not begun to understand God or fellowship with Him as we would like, but one day, one day we shall dwell in God's presence and enjoy Him forever. And then listen to this. Wearsby goes on to say, the eternal city is so wonderful that the best way John found to describe it was by contrast. 
he enters and he starts making a lot of statements and he says, no more, no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more tears, no more this, no more that, no more. The believers who first read this inspired book must have, been re- must have rejoiced to know that in heaven there will be no more pain, tears, sorrow, or death for many of their number have been tortured and slain and in every age the hope of heaven has encouraged God's people in times of suffering. Another commentator said God dwelt with human beings in the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and above all in Christ. Christ sends forth His Spirit in order that the church and its members may be dwellings of God. But the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is the consummation of all of that. And that's so true. This new Jerusalem, this holy city that's coming down from heaven, uh, from God, it's going to be the consummation of everything. Okay, so the first statement John heard was God's dwelling is now with man. The second statement he hears is God is making everything new. Look in verse 5. He says, Then the one seated on the throne. Now, again, you know, if you've ever been in the workplace, if you've ever if you've ever if you've ever been in a job where your company had to make some major changes, maybe they had to make a drastic announcement, maybe they were cutting Maybe they're laying people off or maybe they're merging with another country or uh, company or maybe they're opening up a new office in a different place or whatever. Uh, you know how it feels when they make a big announcement that affects you and it says, this came down from central headquarters. You know, This came down from the CEO. This came down from the boss man. Everybody goes, ooh. In other words, this came from the very top, right? Well, notice here in verse 3, the first statement that John hears, he says, I hear a loud voice from the throne. And now, here in verse 5, then the one seated on the throne. It doesn't get any higher than that, folks. Okay, it doesn't get any higher than that. And so God announces, the one sitting on the throne, in verse 5 says, Look, I am making everything new. Now, God is going to make everything new. Uh, Only God, I love what William Hendrickson said. He said, only God can make new. People may vainly imagine that by means of better education, a better environment, better legislation, a more equitable distribution of wealth, that they're going to usher in a new era, a golden age, the utopia of man's ardent desire. And if you haven't been paying attention this past year, there's a lot of people that believe that. We just just need better education, better environment, better legislation. We need to uh, distribute the wealth and, 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 and everybody will be fine, you know? But what what does Henderson say? He says their dream remains a dream. Neither economic nor disarmament conferences, neither better schools nor share the wealth programs are going to bring about a really golden age, a new heaven and earth or a new order. It is only God who through His Spirit makes all things new. He alone can restore and renew man and the universe. He does it now, though in a very restricted sense, but He's going to do it by and by when Christ returns. And all I can say is amen. Now what does He mean that God uh, makes everything new in a restricted sense now? Uh, I believe He's referring to a truth that can be summarized in 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. In other words, when you get saved, you're dead to that old way of life. You've been born again, and now you're walking in newness of life. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old man is dead. The old woman is dead. And now you're a new man, a new woman in Christ. 
in that sense, God makes something new right now. Okay? But, listen to this. Now, I love this. Um, I've gone back to this uh, scripture for a few years now. And the more I read it, the more I meditate on it, I see something new each time. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, there's this, um, uh, the way it's written in the New Testament, it, it looks like it's something that Paul referred to in his time. Perhaps it was a song or a hymn because it's got quotation marks. It's not Old Testament Scripture. I occasionally see that in the New Testament. So we think it was probably some hymn or song that they might have sung in the early church. But listen to what it says in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Uh, he is referring to Jesus Christ. It says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Remember when Jesus told Philip, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, okay? Firstborn is status and rank. The firstborn had more uh, rights inheritance-wise than the rest. He's the firstborn. He's the only begotten Son of God. Firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him. Okay? Everything was created by Him. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and... For Him, okay? He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, that is Jesus, and through Him, that, that is Jesus, to reconcile, listen to this, to reconcile everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Isn't that interesting? By making peace through His blood shed on the cross. That verse 20 there lets me know that the cross of Jesus Christ, when He died on that cross and shed His blood, and on the third day rose from the dead, proving that He had victory over death, hell, and the grave, that is cosmic in in effect. Cosmic in effect. Not only does it uh, affect mankind personally, because if we believe and we come to Him, we can be saved and we are made new. But someday, one day, <laughs> everything's going to be reconciled by the blood of Jesus at the cross. Everything in heaven, everything on earth. I'm not talking about universalism. I'm not talking about everybody will be saved. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about He will reverse the curse of sin. And through, through the blood of Christ, through His redemption, now He reconciles everything to Himself. And that makes sense because He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Everything was created by Him, and everything is created for Him. And He says, that's enough. And He brings it together. Mm, isn't that good? That's good, isn't it? Well, let's keep going. I'll be done in about 10 minutes. Just hard to stop when it's good. So, four statements. John said God's dwelling is with man. That's one. Number two, God is making everything new. Now let's look at the third statement. He says, write these words because they're faithful and true. Let's go back to verse 5 and read the whole verse. He says, the one seated on the throne, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, write because these words are faithful and true. Now, he, that's intentional. You know, it's like when you're talking to somebody, it's very important you say, hey, listen to me. 
or you say it twice because you want to make sure it sticks, right? Well, here, God is telling us, not only am I making everything new, but what I just said is faithful and true, and you can take it to the bank. That is what he is saying. William Hendrickson says this. He says, we can hardly imagine that the effects of sin can ever be removed. And humanly speaking, that's true. We look around at this world and how messed up it is. We read the news and people are murdered and shot all the time and this, that, and the other. And we go, man, Lord, this world needs you. Come, Lord Jesus, right? We can hardly imagine in our, in our, in our finite thinking that the effects of sin can never be removed. And yet, uh, Hendrickson says, they are going to be taken away so that all things shall actually be made new to strengthen us in our faith that he who promised will really do it, he says, behold, which is an imperative indicating to John that he must take to heart what he has heard and write it down for the comfort of others, for these words are faithful and true. So certain is the fulfillment of this promise that the voice speaks as if it's already been fulfilled. In fact, as far as John's vision is concerned, the transformations had already taken place because he saw a new heaven, and a new earth. What a, what a faith-building experience, right? So, that's what he says. Jump, jump again real quick, Revelation 22, verse 6. In Revelation 22, verse 6. Now, next week we will finish up 21, and we'll go through Revelation 21, 5. And all of that is about the new Jerusalem, which is a, a zoom-in close-up of the new heaven and new earth. Remember, the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem, they kind of go together, okay? And when he gets done describing all that, in 22 verse 6, he says, these words are faithful and true. Now, haven't we just read that in the previous chapter, verse 5? Absolutely. He says, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. So again, as he's talking about all this, when he starts to talk about it, he says it's going to happen. It's faithful and true. Then he gives you a real in-depth description of it, and he says again, these words are faithful and true. It's going to happen. You can take it to the bank. So this statement, these words are faithful and true, they're repeated in 21 and in 22, and they function as a conclusion to the new creation promises uh, that he's talking about with the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Now, one more. We have one more statement. So John heard four statements. God's dwelling is now with mankind. God is making everything new. Number three, write these words because they're faithful and true. And the fourth and final statement is it is done and God separates the righteous and the wicked. Look, if you will, in verse 6, Revelation 21, verse 6. He says, Then he said to me, that is the, the one on the throne that's been speaking, he says to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Uh, as G.K. Bill says, he says, use of the first and last letters of the alphabet was an ancient figure of speech for the totality of everything in between. In other words, when we say, oh, that person, he's really good at what he does. He, he knows it all from A to Z. That's kind of a little, you know, contemporary saying that we might say, you know, they got it all covered. 
Well, here, here he's referring to Jesus, and he is the Alpha, which is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, which is the last letter. Okay, so what does that tell you? So Revelation uh, 21, verses 5 and 6, are, the on, are only the second time in this entire book of Revelation where God is explicitly quoted uh, as saying the Alpha and the Omega. Where does it come in? Uh, where else does it occur? In Revelation 1, verse 8, the very, very beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8, look at what it says. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And as you go through the book, you've heard me say this before, as you go through the book of Revelation, eventually it says the one who is and the one who was, and it doesn't say who is to come because he shows up. Okay, Jesus is coming back, and uh, that's exciting. So both in Revelation 21 and Revelation 1, here is the title, the Alpha and the Omega. This title appears at the beginning of the book and, and toward the end of the book, and it's fitting. It's not coincidental. In other words, the totality of all the events that have been portrayed in Revelation 1 through 21 lie under God's sovereignty, as does all history prior to the writing of Revelation. Therefore, these titles refer to God's sovereignty over all events in history, and on this basis, readers are assured that just as God brought the first creation into being, He will certainly bring it to a conclusion, and that is so true. And then you've got the water of life. There in verse uh, 6, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. What is all that about? The water of life refers to eternal life, which is salvation. Now remember that this water is given to the thirsty. And in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth, it will be poured out. And so this water always proceeds from God, who is the fountain. And it says, the conqueror shall receive these things in him, Uh, The covenant promise, I will be his God and he shall be my son, is fulfilled. Um, How many times, and I would love to look this up sometime, and I should have. Uh, You can probably get a concordance and look this up. But if you go back to the Old Testament, there are several times, and I don't mean 10 or 20. I mean several times in the Old Testament prophets where God talks about, and I will be their God and they will be my people. I know you've heard that. It's a common refrain throughout the Bible. Well, now here is the epitome of that being fulfilled, okay? Um, God's dwelling is now with man. And in verse 3, he will be with them and and, and will be their God. They will be his people and and he will be their God. So that's pretty awesome. So let's wrap this up. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to read one passage of Scripture and I'm going to make one last point and I'm done. So... One last scripture to tie all this together. 2 Peter 3, and this is it. 2 Peter 3. Remember I quoted Peter from the book of Acts earlier about the restoration of all things? Well, Peter went on to elaborate on that uh, in his last epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to read a few verses beginning in verse 10. He says in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. And since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait. Remember that word wait. I'm going to hold up my finger because you're going to hear it again. As you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved. 
Because in that day the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on His promise, we wait, second time it's mentioned, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now Peter's a Jewish fisherman. What's his ultimate hope? A new heaven and a new earth. He just, he just said it. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait, third time, okay, you got that? Third time he said wait. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Now, I'll stop there and I'll say this. What do we do while we wait? Because I don't know about you, I look forward to the day when we have the new heaven, the new earth, and the new, new Jerusalem. It's going to happen. You can bank on it because the one who said it, his words are faithful and true, remember? So what do we do while we wait? Well, there's offense and defense. On the offense, make every effort to be faithful. Keep doing what God wants you to do to the very end. And the defense is found there in 2 Peter 3, verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, and then the verse before that says, then you won't be led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. In other words, the defensive posture is be on guard, but keep growing. Be on guard, but keep growing. So, I'm done, so I want to ask one final question. Now that we've talked about the new heaven, the new earth, now that we've kind of went to Hebrews and Peter and Paul and kind of put the pieces together of what is the hope of the Hebrews? What, what are they ultimately looking forward to? Even Hebrews 11 says, Abraham wasn't excited about that promised land. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misquote me. You're going to go, oh, he's not excited about the promised land. Of course he was. But what did Hebrews 11 say? Ultimately, he was looking for what? A city with foundations whose maker and builder and architect is God. What is that city? It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the new Jerusalem that comes with the new heaven and the new earth. Now, if I were to ask you in conversation, what are you looking forward to? You might say, oh, next week we're going on a trip. Oh, we're fixing to go over here. We're going to go over there. I'm going to ask you tonight, what are you looking forward to? But it's not a conversation question of what your plans are this summer. My question, what do you have to look forward to, is qualified by this. What do you have to look forward to when you meet your maker? One day when you stand before God and you happen to give an account of your life, what are you looking forward to? What do you hope, and, what do you hope happens next? I hope and pray tonight that your desire will be to be with God and He, and he with you in the new heaven and the new earth. And if it is, praise God, thank Him for making it possible. And if it's not, then maybe we all need to look at our priorities and make a change before it's too late. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before You tonight. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for this time in Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for showing us a glimpse of the promise of the righteous that they will be with You in a new heaven and a new earth that the new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, will come down from heaven from you, God, and your dwelling will be with us, and we will be your people, and you will be our God. Lord, we thank you for that future fulfillment of that awesome covenant promise. Father, I pray, I want to thank you for sending Jesus, for shedding his blood on that cross to purchase salvation. 
Father, I pray if there's someone here today that, that uh, is not saved, Lord, that they would realize what you've done and they would receive you as Lord before it's everlasting too late. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com. Thank you.